0: This morning we're going to continue as as I've talked about already uh, Exodus chapter eleven and so if you if you join me in turning in your Bible to Exodus chapter eleven and, and read with me it'll be up on the screen in just a second when we get there um, but we've come to sort of a, a breaking point in the text right so we've we've seen nine of the um, of the of the plagues all already. Right. Uh, the negotiations last time at the end of chapter 10 have completely failed between Pharaoh and Moses. In fact, Pharaoh was very angry with um, with Moses and in some ways. Right. Uh, you know, rightfully so. they you know, basically seen his his country just go to absolute destruction and it's his fault. But um, there have been these nine different plagues that have come upon him. Let's see if you can uh, remember them with me. At first, it was the Nile that was turned into blood. Uh, you might remember that. Do you remember the swarm of frogs that infested the land and infested in their houses? And, and the description was there was even frogs in their pots. Um, and then there was the, the gnats. You remember the gnats and the flies? Something we can uh, relate to, especially now. Man, my kids leave the doors open and the flies are just infesting our home. Um, the disease that came over the, 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 their flocks and, and their livestock that killed off so many of their animals. Um, the boils that broke out on them, right, on their bodies, the boils that broke out on the Egyptians and their, their animals. Do you remember the, the hailstorm to end all hailstorms um, that came upon them? Uh, and then the, um, the devastating swarm of locusts this time. So not flies, not gnats, that would have been, that would have been nice compared to what the, the locusts did, brought absolute utter destruction upon, uh, upon the land. And then last week, the literal darkness that covered the land for 3 days. So the 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 nine plagues have 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 passed. And now we're up to this 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 breaking point, but but everything in Egypt is just destroyed. The land, the economy. I'm sure even some of their buildings and their their morale was destroyed. Their religion was destroyed and absolutely left in in ruin. Everything that that made them Egyptian in a sense is has just left them was just has been destroyed or just left them completely exposed as a as a sham and a and a fraud and this morning as we we move into the the 10th plague right and as we know the 10 plagues so we are at the the last of the plagues that this is the announcement of the last plague and there's a whole chapter here given to us in these, in these 10 verses, describing just the announcement of this last plague. And as we know, this is a very detailed plague with much destruction. So let's look at verse 1 in Exodus chapter 11. The Lord said to Moses, yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt in the sight of Pharaoh's servants. And in the sight of the people. So Moses said, thus says the Lord. About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt. And every firstborn in the land. uh, uh, The land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne. Even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the hand mill. And all the firstborn of the cattle. There should be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt such as there has never been, nor ever will be. But not a dog will growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come, to, come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that I will let you go. And when he went out from Pharaoh, and he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger, then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. And this is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, and inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. One of the main reasons that the church has been given elders, shepherds, teachers, pastors, as the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4, verses 12 through 13, is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up of the body of Christ until we obtain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ. What a great text. Instructing us, right? Instructing us on the church, how we, sh- how we are to be structured and, and modeled and the purpose of the leaders that God has put into the church. And how do we, how then do elders do that? How do these shepherds do this? Well, the primary means, as we see from the scripture, the primary means is by teaching, and preaching God's word, expository preaching, right? There's a big difference. If you want to know the difference, pick up the orangish-yellow book in the back if there's copies left over. Expository preaching. When we do that so that you will understand the text, you'll know how to read the text, you'll know how to study the text and interpret the text, even by yourself being able to understand it and then to rightly apply it in your own life. And even communicate it appropriately in your context, whatever that may be, whether, the, whether you are a, a mom or a, another teacher or whatever it may be. And so this morning, I want to give you, it's the very beginning, I want to give you one of the, the, the biggest keys, the biggest key, the greatest key, like a, like a master key when it comes to Bible interpretation. And you Ready? Get your pens, get your papers, write this down, this is important, and here it is. The Bible, the Bible, God's word, is about God, right? There is the the master key of interpretation. God's word, the Bible, is about God. The Bible is his revelation. Right? Meaning that it's revealing, it's a exposing the bringing out, manifesting of God. It's God revealing himself through the inspired, inerrant 66 books in all of their different genres, historical accounts, prophecies, and teaching. So that we could know him. And so that we could understand him and know how to know him and know how to worship him. Which means the Bible is our only source of authority, right? We say that often. It's our only source of authority. It's completely sufficient in our understanding of God. So how do we come to know God? Through God's word. We go nowhere else. There's nowhere else that you can go. There's no inward part of you that you can turn to say that this is how I come to know God. I come to know God by getting to know myself. That's stupid. That's incoherent, right? To know God is we have to look outside of ourselves and that's into His Word. Now, I understand that this understanding of the Scripture, there's a whole lot more. It's a little reductionist, but we got to move on. But we definitely can have more to say about the Bible. But if the Bible is about God, then we must understand. Primarily, if it's about God, then primarily the Bible is not about you. And it's not about, it's not about me. It's not about us. Yes, it, it tells us how to be saved. It tells us how to live, what's pleasing to the Lord, and, and so on. But that's only based upon what has been revealed about God himself. And about his son, Jesus Christ, and the gospel. And so Exodus, as we, we kind of now focus in, right? We're dialing in now with the microscope onto Exodus in chapter 11. We understand that the Exodus is about God. Yes, it's about the deliverance of his people from slavery and, and soon to be into the land of, 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 uh, that's flowing with milk and honey. And it's about the, the judgment of, of Israel, but the main subject is not Israel. The main subject is is not Moses, though Moses is vastly important. Clearly, Moses is vastly important. It's not about Moses. It's not about Pharaoh, definitely, right? He's a very important character part of the story, but he's not the point. It's the Lord. He's the point. He's revealing himself in the narrative, in the text. And so in that case, we can see, we can know, and we can understand who God is even from passages like this. And in the announcement this morning, the announcement this morning here in chapter 11 of this last plague, the, the final blow, we see, we see, I think, three massively important characteristics of the nature of God and the will of God that we are meant to see. And Pharaoh, after Pharaoh, he, he threatens Moses, right, and he, back in chapter 10, verse 29, he he basically just threatens Moses get out of here I never want to see your face again if I see you again I'm going to kill you kind of thing and, and, and Moses I think at that point has one more word to say to, to say to Pharaoh before the 10th plague and that's what we see here in in chapter 11 and this is where we see the three things about the Lord and I think is also a thread that thro- flows throughout the Bible so It's just not just a uh, uh, the, the microscope but when you when you, when you zoom back out, you see this flow from one end to the scripture to the other is the character and nature of God. So the first point that we see here in our passage, and I think it's a good one. It's not one I came up with because it goes throughout the Bible. It's nothing new. It's something that we need to hear and something that we need to be reminded of. And that is this, is that the Lord is Faithful. I mean, that that seems elementary, right? It's actually us. We're, we're smart, we're intelligent, we've come, been going to church for a long time. We understand that God is faithful, and the rest of that is, is God is faithful, the Lord is faithful, and he keeps his promises. Right? I mean, put those together. His faithfulness to fulfilling his promises. Now, that's, that's not just some, some cliche bumper sticker slogan, right? That's, that's not something that we just... You say when 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 times get hard, or it's some kind of mantra. If we say it enough times, it'll come true. It's not just some motto that we say it and believe it, and then somehow we will just make it through. This isn't a a name it and claim it kind of statement. This isn't a manifesting it kind of thing. No, that's that's garbage. We we believe that God is faithful and He keeps His promises because. And we remind one another of that truth is because God has revealed that in his word that he is faithful and that he keeps his promises. It's deeply rooted in his word. And if it's deeply rooted in his word, then as his people, as his church, we can we can make that very point that the Lord is faithful and keeps his promises as an anchor to our souls. That grounds us. Gives us a firm foundation by which we can stand. Right? And we see that, I mean, just clearly throughout God's word. And if it's in God's word, then hear me on this, right? Then it's truth. There's, 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 no, there's no if, ands, buts. There's no, there's no circumstance of, of devastation that can come upon you that changes any of that. And that's why Jesus said you could build your life on it. On Christ the solid rock I stand. That's it, brother. Nowhere else to go. And it's right here in this passage. And if you if you look close enough, you can, you can see the Lord's faithfulness in keeping his promises. Look at verse one. The Lord says to Moses, Yet one plague. One, one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt, and afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Now, I can't move any further until we see, once again, the absolute sovereignty of God here. Which, by the way, the sovereignty of God and his faithfulness and keeping the promises, man, they just go together. You can't, you can't separate them. Look, he says, uh, he says to, to Moses, Uh, And he announces to Moses, he says, one more plague, which literally means one more blow is coming. One more blow is coming. And that takes us back to what we understand, what God has said from the beginning. That it's going to take a strong arm, a, a stretched out arm that's going to deliver you and deliver my people. And also the Lord is showing his sovereignty in announcing the number, right? He says, this is the last plague. This is it. This is my plan from the from the from the very beginning, right? This is the listen to the specificity of the prediction. He's also saying how it's been him who has been sovereignly active in working to bring about plague after plague upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. These aren't just natural circumstances and happenstances that God says, "Oh, well, I guess I can use that one." He's not playing chess. He's not reacting or responding. He's sovereignly, divinely acting in a way to bring about his glory and the deliverance of his people. Now look how the Lord announces, now is the time when he will let you go. What does that mean? It means he has completely and utterly been in control of everything, including their freedom. And this last plague is the one where he will do it. And when he does, he will drive you away. He will push you out. He wants you to leave. And So what is God doing? What's the Lord doing? He is he's telling us exactly how this is going to happen and why. How how can he do that? How can he tell us and tell Moses and tell us exactly how it's going to happen? Because he's God, and he's sovereign and he's been orchestrating all things else. The, the exodus is not going to happen based upon some kind of concession that Pharaoh makes, or some, kind of, uh, or some kind of compromise that Pharaoh is going to make. No, it's the Lord. It's the Lord who has been working in and through this whole thing, all the way to the point where Pharaoh is going to drive them out. He's going to beg Israel to leave, and in fact, he's going to Provide all the resources. He's going to facilitate everything they need to leave. In verse 2, Moses is, is told to speak to the, Israelites, to the Israelites. He says, speak now in the hearing of people that they may ask every man on his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And this is the first time since chapter 5 that the Lord has told Moses to go directly speak to the people. Go directly tell them. Since they were, remember when they were building, they were making bricks without straw. That's how far back ago that was. But the point is what? What is he telling them to do? Make preparations. It's time. Get ready. Get prepared. It's it's time, right? So there's this time where he he has this care for his people. He turns inwardly to take care of the family. And the way that they they are to begin their preparation is to do what? Is to go ask their neighbors. Well, the neighbors are the Egyptians. To go ask their neighbors, the Egyptians for, for silver and gold jewelry. That's an interesting command. And verse three sums it up. Sums up their plundering. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight over the Egyptians, meaning they just went and asked, and they gave it to them. It says, moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of people. There's this absolute complete reversal, right? Where Moses was, was detestable and seen as a, as, a, as a stink in the land. Now he's not. Now he's, he's seen as great in the land. Even Pharaoh's servants understand and comprehend and, and can honor uh, uh, Moses in such a way as this conqueror. The Lord is giving the riches of Egypt to his people. And when they leave, they are going to plunder Egypt as if now they are the conquerors to leave the land. In God's sovereignty, he has granted to Israel to be his conquerors. And in the next chapter, chapter 12, that's exactly what we see happen. The Lord is sovereignly giving them favor as the Lord is sovereign in raising up Moses as someone who is great in the eyes of the Egyptians. And what that means is that God, here, in this very small ways that we see, he is faithful to keep his promises. He is faithful. This favor that it says in the text, this this favor wasn't just happenstance. It wasn't just happenstance. It certainly was what God had created, right? But this is something that the Lord had promised would happen. In fact, it's something that the Lord had promised centuries earlier. Genesis chapter 15, the great promise to Abraham when he was still Abram. It says this, then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs. Meaning they're going to travel to Egypt, which is not their land. And then they will become servants, right? They will become servants there. That's a nice way to say that they are going to be slaves. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. So the Lord had had told them that this was going to happen. But look at verse 14. But I will bring judgment upon the nation that they serve. Here's the plagues. And afterward, they shall come up out, right? So the Exodus, yeah. But come out with great possessions. The Lord had promised this. The Lord had granted this favor because this was his promise. And what is he saying? He said, I'm fulfilling my promise that I made all the way back to Abram. But he also told this to, to Moses. You Remember that back in chapter 3? He told this to, to Moses that he would, he would give them great favor to the, to the, in, in the eyes of the Egyptians. To the extent that when they leave, they will not leave empty. And so we see here God showing, again, sovereignty and faithfulness and keeping his promises. These things come together. God's sovereign care for them. Sending them out with wealth. Not in poverty, as slaves should be in some sense, but in wealth. But what we see even more than just them leaving with wealth is the faithfulness of God which is far greater. And look what the text says. It just says all you have to do is go ask for it and they'll give it to you. I want to remind you of some amazing verses that we know so well. The promise to us in Christ in the gospel from Romans 8. Verse 31, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, isn't that a promise? Isn't that a, isn't that a promise to us, to the, the church, that he would give us all things? The answer to that is yes, amen, it is. That's a, that's a promise that he will give us all things. In fact, that is a monumental promise. That's a massive promise. And if that's true, if that's that's a, a real promise that God has given us, then how do we know, how are we supposed to believe that? How are we supposed to know that that's true, that he is going to give us all All things. Well, because it's based upon his faithfulness in the text. It's right there in the verse. God makes it very simple for us. Because he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. That's how. How is he going to give us all things? How is it Why is, How is it based in? What is it based upon? Is it based upon us? Is it based upon you? Is it predicated upon your faithfulness? Is it predicated upon your righteousness and what you can do and what you can conjure up and how well you act? No, it's based upon the righteousness of Christ. That's how we get all things. So is the greater of that passage, Romans 8, is the greater, is that the wealth of Egypt, though? Is that what we should be waiting for? Is the wealth of Egypt or the wealth of the nations, the things that benefits to the world, is that what is greater? Is that what we're to be looking for? And see, this is where people really mess up in texts like this. They really mess up because, no, the, the passage is clear what the greater already is. And the greater is what God has already given us, and that is his son, Jesus Christ. He is the greatest. And there's no one that is greater. So when we say, when we read passages like this, will he not also graciously give us all Things and certainly we understand that there is some physical things, knowing that God will give us these things as we, as we, we, we need them, but what we understand this uh, completely is understanding that it's Christ. The greatest is Jesus, and if he has given us his son, how is there anything else that could possibly compare to that? How can anything else in compare? What can be greater than that? How could we trade anything else and compare that to be greater than Jesus Christ? And if he has given us his son, and he has loved us as a father, how could we possibly fail to understand and believe that he will provide everything that we will need? Praise God, brothers and sisters. I want want us to be clear, right? I think this is good. Praise God. He has not given us the wealth of the nations. But he has given us something so much more. He has given us the wealth of heaven. His son, Jesus Christ. The Lord who has once delivered his people from Egypt and has fulfilled his promise to give them the wealth and the favor of Egypt. He has now, through Christ, delivered his people from their sin. And from his wrath and eternal judgment. And thus fulfilling his promise to do so. But he doesn't also leave us there, right? He, he also grants us a new name. And he gives us a new family and a, a new position before him, no longer as slaves, but as sons. Again, going back to Romans 8. He also has an inheritance. We speak much about this, particularly since we've been in, we were, have been in 1 Peter before, right? This inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading that is being kept for us in heaven. An inheritance that, that cannot be stained, it cannot be diminished, it cannot be defiled or decayed because it's being kept by him. And you are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation to come. And, you will, and, and have you or I, have we done anything to deserve or earn such a thing? Is there anything that we can bring to the table that would compel God to give us an exchange for that? No. The answer, his his favor and his faithfulness is by his sovereign grace. Promises made and promises kept. Let's just, I mean, and, and in closing this, this point and we move on let's take a moment and just think more about the promise of the forgiveness of sin the the great psalm 103 right we many of us know this passage we know it by heart verses 11 and 12 for as high as the heavens are above the earth so is his steadfast love to those who fear him as far as the east is from the west so does he remove our transgressions from us the forgiveness of sin That promise was fulfilled in Christ. It was fulfilled in Christ. The forgiveness of our sins, right? As far as the east is from the west, right? This is almost like an infinite distance Does he remove our transgressions from us, our guilt, our shame, our deserved judgment. He removes from us because of Christ. He has rectified our past. We have some pasts, don't we? We bring some, some, some baggage with us, don't we? But God, through Christ, has rectified our past and forgiven us. And he has opened the door to a very blessed future, hasn't he? And the promise from Jeremiah 29, 11, we know this one well, right? The promise to his people when they were in Babylonian captivity, he says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future. And a hope. And we know that that promise, again, is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Because by his his grace, he restores us to an an abundant life and a true future with a hope and a a joy that no matter what happens in this life, we know that we have been built upon him. And that we have been forgiven of sin because of the work of Christ and nothing that we have done. We have been reconciled with God. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13 through 18, it tells us of the promises of God, that he will save us. And that he swears an oath to do so. And then the outcome of that, in verse 18, is this, is that we who have fled for refuge. And where is that refuge? That refuge is in Christ. It says, as we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to do what? To hold fast to the hope that is set before us. Why can we do that? Because God has fulfilled his promises to us. That he is His faithful. And now we have the strong encouragement, as it says, to hold fast to the hope. And what's the hope? The hope is Christ. The promises in Hebrews 9, verses 11 through 15, a wonderful chapter of the forgiveness of sin and how it has been accomplished through the, through the blood of Christ. We practice, uh, we, 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 we represent it in our Lord's Supper together. It's such a sweet reminder to us. Brothers and sisters, the promise that God has made to us in Christ, all the promises find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And like I said at the, at the beginning, we, we do not merely believe these on a whim, we, we're, we're not just flightily coming to them and, and, and as if it's like the, the, the opiate of the masses, right? We're not just duped by these things, but these are th- these are truths and promises fulfilled by God. We see understanding in his word and we understand it in the experience of our lives and in the life of the church that God keeps his promises, that he forgives sin and he gives us an inheritance, that we have sonship and sanctification and ultimately one day even glorification because God's word says so so keep your minds and your hearts on him is leading us and he is preparing us as he is leading and preparing Israel so is he leading and preparing us to rely on his faithfulness that he keeps his promises And second, as the Lord is faithful to keep his promises, he is also righteous. Listen to me. He is righteous in his judgments. Now, we've we've certainly talked about about this quite a bit throughout the the plagues. In verses 4 through 8, the Lord has Moses to announce this last blow. One more plague upon Egypt right before he leaves Pharaoh's presence. And the announcement is pretty specific on the when, the who, the where, and the what. Right? Verse 4 tells us the when. Midnight. It's coming at midnight. You can set your clocks by it. It's that specific. The Hebrew is intended. It's not somewhere around midnight. No, it, it's midnight. And like I said last week, right, remember the, the, the God, Amnon-Ra, Right. The, the God of the, the greatest of all the gods of Egypt, the, the, the sun God was a representation of 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 life and, and and that light. But the antithesis of the light is what? It's darkness. And we saw darkness come upon them in the last plague. And when night came for them, it represent this battle between good and evil, life and death, the sun and darkness. And so what would midnight represent? midnight would represent the height, the pinnacle of the darkness. And what God says is that even in your even in your false religion, I'm going to come at midnight and I will be the greatest terror you've ever seen. The height of darkness was coming upon them. In verse 5, what The plague is this, is that every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there should be a great cry throughout the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor will ever be again. And what we understand from reading this passage, no doubt, again, the clarity of it is that this is horrific. And there is no doubt, there's, there's just there's no way that, that we can sugarcoat this and nor, nor does Moses. He doesn't sugarcoat it at all. There is no escape from this judgment to Egypt. From the slave girl, the servant girl who's in the field or at the handmill or to even Pharaoh's own family. And verse 6 tells us of how bad it really is. The, The anguish that's going to be there. And understandably, right? I mean, we're thinking every firstborn dead. Gone. Easy for me to say. I'm not the firstborn in my family. But I have my own. This is horrific. And what we see here, the Lord returning in verse 6, Lord, the Lord's returning the cries of his people, the ones who were crying out to him for help. And now it's going to be Egypt that's going to be crying out. And when God's people cried out to the Lord, the Lord heard, and the Lord answered, and the Lord remembered. And when Egypt cries out such a great cry, that will never be like any other cry before, who's going to hear Egypt? Who's going to answer Egypt. Now, we're, we will be dealing with this more later in Exodus of, of this plague that's coming with the Passover. But this is what we would call a very hard text. This is a, a hard passage because on the, surface, on the surface, thinking, feeling, compassionate, kind, even loving people have a hard time reconciling this text of how a God who is, who is love is intentionally killing the firstborn of Egypt. And understandably, this is something that is hard to grasp. I I get that. We have been created as moral creatures. And on the surface, this seems to be a moral problem of a loving God killing the firstborn of the Egyptians. But yet we understand again from the Bible that this act is not the act of a man, but the act of a holy and righteous God to exact justice upon the Egyptians. And so then that totally separates us from being able to cast our moral judgments upon the perfect, holy, and righteous God. And so let's think about it for just a moment. The Exodus. It began, right? It, it began with a, the, the, the genocidal attempts of Pharaoh to kill Israel. It it began with with the infanticide of God's people to take literally their children and throw them into the river that they may die to kill them. The, The Egyptians continued in their wickedness. And the Lord is righteously judging them for their intent, their murderous intent. And not to mention the 400 years of, of, of forced slavery. Egypt is very guilty. What, did, what God did to Pharaoh and to Egypt is a direct response of what Pharaoh had already done in his wickedness. But God's judgment, of course, as we know, it goes, it goes deeper than that because the Egyptians, they deserved to die because, because they were sinners by nature. They had already rejected God. They had already failed to honor God as God. They worshiped the creation rather than the creator. They had their idols that they, they loved and that they, they treasured. And here's what we need to remember, that death has always been the wages for sin. Death has always been the wages of sin. So this is why in verse 8, I think it says why Moses left Pharaoh in hot anger. Because he, he gets, he understands what's happening here. He's, he's mad over this, this ego of this man. Of this man who is, who is so uh, stubborn and hard-hearted that he would rather watch all the firstborn of his own people die than to repent and to be obedient to the Lord. And that's what made him angry. This is what we call righteous indignation. And so, so yeah, listen to me. This is is the same fate, the fate that we see happening to Egypt. This is the same fate of all humanity. All of humanity deserves death. The wages of sin is death. And since Genesis chapter 3, we all deserve death. Death, because as all sinners, we are in Adam, and the punishment for sin, again, is death. So when God chooses to, to, to claim a life, as here he claims the, of all the firstborn in Egypt, he is always justified in doing so. And so the real question for us is not questioning God in his morality and saying, God, how dare you? The question is, why not the rest of us? Why not me as well? Why am I not being put to death? Am I not sinful in my rebellion? Did I not at, at, my, at one time shake my fist at God? And trying to exert my own will and to live my life the way that I wanted to live, according to my idols and my flesh. The curse of sin is death. We are all going to die one day. And all man will face face divine judgments. But as we know, for God's elect, His people, His church, we who have believed by faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, I want you to hear from this from Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. What's the curse of the law? Death. By becoming a curse for us, curse all of sin and death, by becoming a curse for us. For as it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Brothers and sisters, there is nothing that shows God's sovereignty than like his judgment and like his election. And there is nothing, or there is, there is hardly any other two um, doctrines that people want to deny first than those two things. His judgment and his election. Oh no, there, there will be, people say, there will be no hell. There will be no judgment. All, all roads lead to heaven. There are churches this morning, quote-unquote, churches this morning, even in our community, who have denied outright the doctrine of hell and judgments completely. There are other congregations as well who have have functionally denied it because they never preach about sin or they never preach about the judgment of God. And, and, And if you don't preach expositional, then you'll never even get to it. Because you'll just pick and choose what you want. This isn't the kind of doctrine that grows churches, by the way. Well, churches. Throughout centuries, people have tried to run from a sovereign and holy God. And to run from a God who has predestined his people by saying, that's not fair. But if you look at the Bible, fair is not the issue. If fairness was God's purpose, if fairness was God's purpose, again, it goes back to that question, or to that answer, or that question, why would he not kill me too? If fairness was the the, the question, or or what's at stake, then God's purpose then would be to do what? Our doom. Because what's fair is, What's fair is the Son of God to never have come to die for such a sinner as you and me. That would be fair. That would be fair. But the Bible is very clear that it is by sovereign grace and divine choice of election and judgment. Romans 9, we've discussed past Thursday night, is used. From this episode in Exodus as the example to explain God's sovereign choice and Paul says it like this he says for Moses says I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion so that it depends not on human will or exertion but on God who has mercy for the scripture says the Pharaoh for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show you show you my power in you and that in my name you might be uh, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Praise God that in his righteousness, he has sent his son to suffer and die on our behalf, who took our judgment so that by faith in Christ, in Jesus Christ, we could be justified before him. Praise God, as as Paul says, he says that God showed his righteousness, that, that he would be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Because the Lord, he is righteous in all of his judgments. And lastly, let's finish with this, and that is this, that as the Lord is faithful to keep his promises, and is also righteous in his judgments, we also see that the Lord is kind, and he sets his people apart. Now, tragically, in the text, we see Pharaoh's hard heart. He will not listen. He does not let the people go yet, as we know. But the Lord continues to multiply his wonders over the land of Egypt, doesn't he? Back in verse 7, again, we hear how the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Meaning he will provide a way to spare his people. And the Lord is uh, announcing to Pharaoh to hear this. He wants Pharaoh. He says, announce this to Pharaoh. Hear this. Pharaoh is hearing this so that he would know how he is going to spare his people from this death. You're bringing this upon your people, but I'm going to spare my people from this death. And what he is showing, and in his sovereignty again, that he is sovereign, and that he is Lord, and he discriminates between his people and everyone else. And this verse should bring us back to chapter 4. brings us back to chapter 4, verse 22, when Moses says, Says the Pharaoh, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord to Israel, my firstborn son, I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I'll kill your firstborn son. The father son relationship here is that is is what's being brought out here in chapter four. And that that God has with his people as as Egypt has with their firstborn sons. But the relationship that God has with his people is not of one of a natural descent. There's a beginning of that history. It goes back to Genesis uh, 15 through 17 with Abraham. But this relationship is strictly by divine decision of God, that God chooses his people. He chooses his son, and he calls him his firstborn son. This is what we call election, right? And so his sonship is chosen by adoption, which is preceded by election before the foundation of the world. Now, this is a huge part of what we understand about the gospel, that through justification, the, the legal way that we have been declared righteous before God based upon faith that is given to you by the grace of God, the trust in the personal work of Jesus Christ, that by that justification, then we have been what? As Paul says in Romans chapter 8 again, that we have been adopted that we have been brought in, we have been adopted. We are no longer slaves, but we are adopted. And as now adopted as sons, we have been given all the rights and privileges as heirs, co-heirs with Christ. And as we see again, as again, Romans 8, man, it's just flowing through this, this passage. That the Holy Spirit then is given to us, right, to testify in us over and over again that you are a son, that you are a son, crying out what? Abba, Father. Again, according to God's sovereign grace. So when he sovereignly declares no judgment for his people, that we don't know yet, we don't know how yet, because we haven't gotten that far in the past, we don't know how yet he's going to provide that distinction. How he's going to make that separation take place. How he's not going to judge them, even as sinners. They are sinners too. How he's going to do that. God is saying here that there is no judgment for my people then it's love, isn't it? It's love. Now, we know that the Lord doesn't always spare his children from suffering and pain. But one thing for sure is that we know that he is always looking over his people with a special providential love. And in of ourselves is nothing that we have done. We've done nothing. To spare ourselves of the judgment we deserve. We just talked about that. But he has given everything to us, hasn't he? Remember we talked earlier. The greatest. He has given us Christ. 1 John 4, chapter verse 10. Not because we have loved him, but that he loved us. I mean, let that sink in. Not that you have loved him, but that he loved you us that he loved you he loves us because he is sovereignly working all things out for our good and according to those who love him and according to his sovereign grace he has made you to know him not by judgment as he did with Egypt And the reason why is because it's Christ Christ took our judgment Christ took our place, but we have come to know him by his love. And it's his love, then, that has set you apart in Christ, to love him. And as, as Romans 9 tells us, that he, to love him not as a vessel of wrath, but as a vessel that receives mercy. And to know him. And when we know him, then we call him Father. He is the point. He is the purpose. And He's showing us that even in this text. He is faithful. And He will keep His promises to you. He is righteous in all of His judgments on sin and sinners. And He has manifested that, brothers and sisters, most clearly on the cross. And He is kind and setting his people apart that we may not face judgment because his son was sacrificed and his sac- the sacrifice of his son satisfied the wrath of God on your behalf. This is our God. This is our Heavenly Father. And may he have all the glory and all the honor and all the praise.